Brad, I was thinking about uh, Stan Lee this morning because I saw an article with him uh, the other day. It was kind of a retrospective piece, and it had two photos very nearby one another in the article. One, Stan Lee in the mid-'90s, looking like the Stan Lee that we know. The mustache is in effect. The, the 1978 <laughs> uh, slightly tinted Wayfarer glasses are in effect. Uh, or maybe they weren't Wayfarers. It doesn't matter. But the standard Stanley glasses, the tinted glasses, the the the, the white, the, the sweater with the little shirt peeking over the sweater, all that kind of thing. And then yeah. right next to it in the article was a nineteen late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties uh, Stanley in the in the Marvel offices, and he looks just like a standard dude, like just milk toasty <laughs> dude that you've never would you'd pass on the street, you wouldn't even know it was him. Yeah, and it got me thinking. And I don't know how much this matters at all, given the profession we work in. But is there some tiny value to having a look in this industry? Oh, well, I, I, I think you're on to something because not only that, but Stan, Stan had that partial gray going and he had that hair that kind of came out in wisps on the side. I mean, everything about him was something that you could be, you could imminently caricature it. He had a very caricaturable Face. Yeah, that's and, it. That's that's exactly it. It's something. Yeah. It's 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 though like if you from memory as a cartoonist, Brad could caricature somebody, then they yeah. have a look. They have a distinctive look that like has has triggered your mind uh, and memory uh, by just by seeing that look. And and, and so like the question is, uh, separate from like comic cons where it would be immediately valuable, is there some value in the cartooning industry as a cartoonist, as a graphic novelist, as a comic book artist? of having a look where someone walks up to you and goes, oh, you look like a heroin junkie that made a deal with the devil. You must be Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah, and in that particular scenario, he was the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like, at a Comic-Con, you can spot Alan Moore in a crowd. Oh. Not that he would be at a Comic-Con, but it'd be like, oh, who, there's a man that worships an ancient Babylonian snake god. All right, I know who that is. <laughs> No, it, I, it's funny you mentioned this, Dave, because I actually tried this for a number of years. This was actually something that I had as part of my grand master plan to take over comics. Oh, but uh, then and, you realized your your big mistake, though, Brad, was you had branded yourself as a skinny nerd, and that wasn't working. <laughs> that wasn't distinctive yeah, enough. It was, it, was, it was hard to stand out as that particular <laughs> branding. <laughs> no, I had a thing where, uh, and, and I, I, I don't think I've ever talked about this, every comic convention that I went to, I dressed in a, a, a t-shirt that was a villain uh, a symbol of some sort. Like one day I would be Black Adam, I'd have the Black Adam t-shirt on, the next day I'd have the Bizarro t-shirt on, the next day I'd have Sinestro, and my whole thing was every day, in, in, in no matter what, I had a villain T-shirt on, and I thought that's oh. people are going to catch on to that. They're, I'm going to be, you know, that's going to be a way that people are going to lock into me. Nobody knew, nobody noticed, nobody cared. <laughs> it was it was completely missed by probably 95 percent of the people that came up to the table. Well, I have to say, I exhibited next to you uh, for maybe, I don't know, five to ten years at multiple Comic-Cons, and I never put that connection together. <laughs> I think the only person that ever noticed it at one point, uh, Scott uh, Kurtz and I were walking into uh, uh, San Diego together, and he, he just looked at me and he goes, ah, villains again, right? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, I noticed. <laughs> 
but he was not impressed. <laughs> there was there was not an ounce of oh, what a neat idea. It was just like yeah, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> but like, how would you? How would one uh, brand oneself? Like Drew Carey, you take the glasses off him, he just looks like a standard Midwesterner. But yeah. you put those glasses on him, and you immediately go, ah, Drew Carey, I see you. Uh, like, what What could a cartoonist do? And granted, I, I know we're kind of tongue-in-cheek saying that this has value, and maybe it doesn't have any value at all. But, like, what could a cartoonist do to brand themselves? Like, Seth wears the kind of 1920s seersucker suits uh, yeah. at any live appearance that he does. But what would what would you do, Brad Geiger, to brand yourself now? Oh. That's a great question. That's a great. Well, and we got to, we, I, I, as you were saying that, it made me realize we have a friend that actually does this. Would you recognize Phil Folio without his vest and his suspenders? Oh my God. Phil Folio does branding. You're right. And his buttons and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely brands his look. Brad Geiger, you are right. Uh, I love it when you, uh, <laughs> uh, here was my honest reaction. You said, well, what about uh, Phil Folio? And my immediate reaction was, oh, Brad, you magnificent son of a bitch. Yes, of course. <laughs> like, that was my legitimate reaction in my mind was like, yes, I didn't even think of that one. It didn't even hit me until you were talking about Seth. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Phil definitely has a look. We, I'm sure there's more. But uh, now what could we do? That's a great question because there's a fine line between branding yourself and Begging for oh, attention. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the fine line is. Can I tell you what the fine line is? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been to Comic-Con and seen a comic strip called Bob the Angry Flower? <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. So for those that don't know, and I've never met the cartoonist, he's a probably lovely human being, but he wears a giant cardboard flower all around his head because his comic is called Bob the Angry Flower. But, okay, so yeah. that shtick is like, ah, oh, for a second you go, oh, all right, I get it. And then... The problem is, though, going on 15, 20 years of Comic-Con now, I've seen him with this cardboard flower around his face. And and you got to ask yourself, is, is that the same cardboard time after time? Is he actually crafting that for every comic convention? Uh, there's, I've got so many questions about that cardboard. And what does it smell like after a few conventions if he's not switching How it out? How chafed is his beard line all the way around, you know? <laughs> Yeah, he's got like corrugated five o'clock shadow. <laughs> Wait a minute, let me try that again. Yeah, he's got like five o'clock corrugation. Nope, wasn't better. No, nope. wasn't better. How about uh, hey, you <laughs> know? You, I love that you're like, hold on, hold on, I'm gonna try that again. He's got could, uh, he's got an Amish he's... beard made out of corrugate. Nope, hold on, hold on. <laughs> let me keep working on this. Hold on, I'm gonna try it one more time. You know, he's the only person that gets his shaving equipment from Uline. <laughs> All right, that one got me. That one got well. Fourth time is a Boy, charm. All right, it took right. me three swings, but I got there. Oh, God, twenty minutes later, you're like, no, no, hold on, hold on. He's the Lion King, all right, but the Lion King of cardboard. Ah, oh, never mind. Ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, uh, our fifth attempt at a cardboard joke. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Comic Lab, the show about making comics. And making a living from cardboard. I'm Brad Geiger, editor of webcomics.com and cartoonist of Evil Inc. And I'm his friend Dave Kellett, cartoonist of Drive and Sheldon and co-director of Stripped. And this week's hour of comics advice is made possible by your support at patreon.com slash comic lab. So Dave, Dave! 
Let's talk comics. Let's talk comics, my friend, because it is a big day today for my friend Brad Geiger. Oh. Brad, what is uh, what is a special anniversary over there in Geigerland? What's today? Yeah, yeah. Today is the anniversary of the first day I uploaded a comic to the web. This today, the first Greystonian appeared on February fourteenth, uh, two thousand. So I've been in web comics now for nineteen years. Wow. Wow, congratulations, my friend. <laughs> it was weird, too, because this was the first time ever that it wasn't something like that I, I hadn't been planning for. In other words, in years past, I made a whole blog post or I had made a big post for my Patreon backers, looking back over the many years and so on and so forth and, and kind of recapping all these projects that I've been really excited enough to work on and 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 just all the little things that happened to you throughout the years and what a nice kind of opportunity is to look back and, and especially on Patreon, thank the people that helped to make it possible. Uh, today, it was just you and I were talking and doing show prep and I'm like, oh, geez, today's the 14th. <laughs> it's my 19th anniversary. That's amazing. So Brad yeah. Geiger, 19 years ago, how small a fraction or percentage of your future hopes were pinned upon the internet 19 years ago? Oh, well, uh, that's, I'd say about 60%. I, I'd say if I'm being honest with what? myself. No, 19 years ago in 2000? Yep. No, you did not. Yep, 60. Well, because here's the deal. My, uh, my whole master plan was to put this comic on the web to show the syndicates what an awful mistake they made by rejecting me. That was mine too. And that once they saw that, they would make me a syndicated cartoonist. But I also knew even then that that was like a 50-50 shot. <laughs> but can I tell you, my my mind frame about a year, year and a half before yours in 19, late 1998, Dave Kellett in Canterbury, England, finishing off my master's degree, getting another reject set of rejection letters from the U.S. <laughs> and I was like, I'll show them. I'm going to put my comic up on this Internet thing. And yeah. then using Microsoft Word to make my first web page. <laughs> and that's the honest to God truth. I used Microsoft Word to make my first web page. Really? Yep. Oh, yep. See, for me, it was uh, GeoCities. Oh, GeoCities. Wow. Do you remember GeoCities? And you could like uh, base it on your geographical location. So there yeah. was uh, a GeoCities for Philadelphia and a GeoCities for Akron, Ohio, and so on and so forth. And uh, I put it up on GeoCities and uh, you know, just on a very bare bones type of uh, website. Uh, and again, my idea was that I'm going to build such a big audience here that the syndicates cannot help but uh, see what a, what a big, ridiculous success I am. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and obviously that just never, never was meant to be. But you found uh, the path that you were meant to walk, Brad Geiger. Everything works out oh, all right yeah. in the end. Listen, if you, I, 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 I realized this uh, several years ago, but at this point, if you would offer me, and I, and this isn't sour grapes, this is just a, a complete, uh, this is just realistic thinking. If you offered me a syndicate contract today, I would not take it. It, it just isn't, uh, it, there's no upside uh, in it at all. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's no way. Uh, it, it, this is something that, uh, that rejection was the, best thing that could have ever happened to for, for a couple of reasons it's the best thing that could have ever happened to me number one it led me to a much better place and for my uh my mental 
well-being and everything else, uh, I'm much better independent than I am uh, sitting in a bigger truck while somebody else is behind the wheel <laughs> driving the way I might not agree with how they're driving. Uh, this is much better for me mentally. And also just the way the uh, economy of the whole thing turned out, uh, I think uh, being an independent is way better than probably, unless you're talking like the Mort Walker level, uh, you know, if you're talking it, it, your, your garden variety syndicated cartoonist, uh, I think uh, web comics for me is, is much better financially as well. Uh, so yeah, it was the, it, and, and also number three, let's not forget number three, Getting those rejections pissed me off so much that for the first couple of years, the whole thing that kept me updating that comic day, and I didn't miss a day for years. I was going six days a week, uh, and, it, and it had nothing to do with the fact that I realized that I was getting ad money. It was all vitriol. It was all, I'm going <laughs> to show them. Those bastards. Brad Geiger, powered by spite. <laughs> <laughs> You're not kidding, man. I that, that that was that was a large part of what was driving me in those early days was I'm gonna show them they were wrong and I'm gonna show them. Yeah, I I uh, I see I see. Uh, looking back, I see how that could have uh, impacted both of our twenties. But like you, yeah. I have a couple things, and one of them in in, in my life is syndication, where uh, only in hindsight, and this is just good generalized advice, even for me now, is that. Uh, there are some failures that only in hindsight do you realize how good the failure was for you. Oh, and yes. Failing to get syndicated might be among the top one or two best failures to ever happen to me. Um, yep. Because had I got syndicated, here's what would have happened. Sheldon would have muddled along with the lower tier level of syndicated papers. Um, I would have mm -hmm. been miserable. Uh, I would never have been able to experiment with my comics in terms of format or themes or tone or getting increasingly weird with Sheldon, which is what I've done. Um, uh -huh. I would never have been forced to develop a whole set of independent business muscles that I've developed. And I would now be among those cartoonists that's like, oh, God, it's all falling apart. But what do I do? Yeah. And you will you would have put the greater part of your career into this thing that's been falling apart for decades now. Yeah. You know, you you you, you would have had no, nothing to show for the work that you had put in. Yeah. So uh, like you, uh, well, unlike you, if someone offered me a syndicate contract right now, I would take it. But here's what I would take it. I would take it with no expectations and only with the limitation that I could have full control over everything digital. You know what I mean? Like you can do whatever you want with a newspaper. I don't care. Uh, yeah, but, but okay, let, let's take that realistically. So now you've signed that contract. Yeah. Now you've got to come up with five strips a week and oh, they've right. got to yeah, fit no, into that it. freaking yep, format. I'm already out. You I'm already out, Brad. Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you bet your boots you're out. Oh, There's well, no, no wait, way. No, you know what? No, I'm not out because you know what I would do? I'd be like, all you're right, 4,000 strips in the archive. Time to start going to work for daddy. <laughs> <laughs> true enough, true enough. And you could you could coast for a long time on that. But oh. Sunday strips, Sunday strips and and also reformatting, uh you at some point it would be more hassle than it yeah. would you're, no, you're not wrong. Think about that. You'd have to put Beth on that and and probably be a good ten to twenty hours a week just getting that stuff ready and prepped. And then every now and again you've got an editor saying, You can't use that punchline, you can't use that word. Yeah. 
And all of that and hassle days- would all that hassle would equal <laughs> about a, a grand total, a grand whopping total of eight thousand dollars a year for me, probably. You know, right. you're like, oh boy, so glad I signed that right. contract. Um, would it be a net gain or a net loss in terms of you know having to hire somebody to go through and do that? You might be in the hole. Yeah, because think about it. You'd also be taking away from time prepping Kickstarters, which could make me fifty to hundred. You know, so it's like, why? What am I exactly. doing? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, the long story short is there's two things that I'm two failures in my life that I am grateful for. And one is not getting a syndicated contract. And the other one is not getting the Rhodes Scholarship. And those two things I'm so I yep. they hurt so much at the time. But looking back, I'm so gra- grateful that they didn't happen. So it's just impressive that you were in the running for the Rhodes Scholarship. Well, the 20 year old me was smarter than uh, than old beat up me. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've got two as well. And 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 again, the the one was not getting syndicated. The other was at one point I was uh, like had the job of graphics editor at a newspaper. And they they I they wanted it was like it was all locked up. And then the next day it wasn't. <laughs> the oh. upper management decided they wanted to go a different direction. And at that point, uh, I, I was all about newspaper graphics. In fact, I was doing fewer and fewer. In fact, in fact, this was late 90s. This was before I posted my first Greystonian. If you want to talk about vitriol, listen to this. Uh, late 90s. And I hadn't really done a comic in a long time, maybe an editorial cartoon here or there, maybe a little something. Hadn't been doing a comic strip, uh, although I had been preparing like comic strip uh, submissions and sending them off uh, more or less as a lark. Uh, but newspaper graphics, I was becoming very well known for. And this was it, it, this was my chance to build a graphics department to do news journalism in a visual way beyond what was being done. And I had, I'm telling you right now, David, I had a vision for what I wanted to do, and I was at the perfect place to do it. And it was one of those things that one day it was like, you're going to come in tomorrow and this is going to be your new job. And the next day it was like, we've decided against that. We're going to do a different thing and you're not going to be the one. And I was furious. I was, I was absolutely, (laughs) I was, I was spitting mad. And that was in the closing days of 1999. Yeah, that was the closing days of 99. And uh, February 9th, uh, February 14th, 2000, I had decided, screw this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be in comics or I'm not going to be in newspapers for the rest of my life. I'm certain I've gone as far as I can go in this career and it's time to start building my comics career. And that was the other part of spite that drove me doing Greystone in was because I I literally said to Carolyn, I'm going to have to start building a career in comics on my own. And it's going to take me a long time to do it. And uh, I better get started now yeah. because this newspaper gig is not going to be here forever. And uh, I'm I'm not going to, it's not going to go the way I thought it was going to go. And yeah, those were the two points of vitriol that led me to, to post that first Greystone in. (laughs) it's amazing how like so brad what do you you know i'm like i'm holding a microphone i'm like we're on the street i'm like mr geiger mr geiger a quick question what do you attribute your success of your career to and you're like bile and spite and vitriol (laughs) yes that's what powered me through my 20s and 30s bile and spite and vitriol 
Yes, being angry all the time. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. And he just takes off his glasses and hulks out. Yeah, I just I grabbed the microphone away from your hand. Sit down. This is going to take a while. First, there was somebody cut me off in traffic. That was just the beginning of that day. But I remember his license plate. And if I ever find him again, I'm going to smack him. And then <laughs> the two, two days later, later, and that's when I first logged into GeoCities. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, you're not wrong. There was a lot of anger bef- behind uh, <laughs> posting those first strips. Well, whatever it takes. And on some level, the positive spin on that is you turned a negative into your life into a positive. And that's that's the best way to take oh, away yeah. that lesson. You know, you and you it was used... and it was uh, something that was wonderful. I mean, at some point, joy uh, supplanted the uh, the anger. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm much more joy now than anger. Yeah, really, I, took... I hardly even think of those resentments at all. Yeah, nor I. Uh, really, I, I'm thankful that it's it's probably the senility setting in that we're both like, I'm happy now. <laughs> now I'm happy. Everything is okay. <laughs> I'm not angry at anyone. <laughs> this is just fine. Yeah, this is fine. Everything is okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, speaking of everything is okay, I wanted to talk to you about my bookkeeping. Uh, this is boy. This is going to oh. be an exciting topic. Uh, boy, are we going to talk bookkeeping today? Well. Uh, so corporate taxes, <laughs> corporate taxes yeah. are due uh, March 15th. You know, personal taxes are April 15th, por- corporate uh, March 14th or 15th. And so I'm, I'm trying to get a jump on it because my strategy for bookkeeping is uh, for corporate bookkeeping is always like, I'll deal with that next month. And uh, eventually it catches up with me. And every year I, I my my resolution is to be better at it. And I'm not. Yeah. And so in February, I'm madly catching up to everything. And uh, anyway, I'm I'm reconciling my books for various Comic Cons that I did last year, and I wanted to share two fun facts with you because I'm not sure what they mean. Uh, so overall, yeah. good news, my best business year ever. I'm super excited about that. And specifically, oh, San Diego Comic Con by a factor of like two thousand bucks was my best Comic Con ever. I was like, wow, this is a great show. I like mm. I've been exhibiting for 19 years, and this one was by far my best show. And then I was like, oh, great. I can't wait to do Emerald City Comic Con. And I go and I reconcile the books for uh, Emerald City Comic Con. And I was down 2000 from any year that I've ever oh, had before at Emerald City Comic Con. Really? So by far my, uh, my worst year at Emerald City Comic Con. And uh, uh, I am not sure what my takeaway should be from that. I wanted to ask you what my life lesson should be from those two shows. <laughs> uh, well, I've got lots of questions, but but let's start with the the takeaway. Uh, uh, what? So the big question is, are you going to go to Emerald City Comic Con uh, in March of this year? I've already paid for the booth, hotel, and flight, so, boy, it'd be a painful thing to walk away from now. Oh, well, I'm locked in. You're locked uh, in. But so oh. this, and I want you to hold me accountable to this because I have said this exact thing in the last four years. Uh, this literally might be my last year at Emerald City Comic Con just because you have said the same thing. I remember saying that the last time you said it on this freaking show. This is good. I I want this show to make me accountable to Emerald City Comic Con because I feel like I am making a very emotional decision about Emerald City Comic Con and not at all a logical or business based decision. So I really this year I'm going to do the numbers right after the show and we're going to talk about them and I'm and you're going to be like, no, David, stop doing Emerald City Comic Con. Yeah. Well, okay. Now, step one, you've got to promise me you're not going to sign any papers while you're there at the show. 
Nothing, nothing that that you're beholden to, right? <laughs> you know how they always come around Sunday saying, "Well, we'll give you a special price if you sign up for the next show next year." Blah blah. None of that, right? I love the idea that I'm I'm at the show, so I'm picturing me on a Sunday, sweating <laughs> and kind of cowering a little bit, but I'm signing a piece of paper. I'm like, Brad's gonna be so mad at me as I'm signing this piece of paper. <laughs> I haven't reconciled my books yet, and Brad's going to be so mad at me. <laughs> I will. I will be disappointed if I find out you that two thousand dollars lower than uh, uh, that's that's not a now. The question is, what changed? Well, it was still profitable. It was still profitable by about I don't know fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand bucks. But that's not a lot uh, over a four day show. No. That's like a five hundred dollar profit per day, and so it's like mm, I don't know. I don't know if that's worth it anymore. Yeah. Well, that is that is different than going into the hole. Oh no, I don't go to sh- I definitely don't go to shows that I lose money at. I haven't done that in yeah. in ten years because I would love, love, love to go to TCAF. But TCAF, I end up with a profit of like for the whole weekend, like five hundred bucks, and it's like, nah, it's not. This is definitely not worth it. I'm not flying up to Canada yeah. for this. Yeah. Uh, and I would love to do New York Comic Con, but everything in New York is like, all right, that bagel is going to be six hundred bucks, and you're like, ah, oh, geez, Louise, <laughs> I can't do New York. I know. Oh my goodness. And I've, I've done New York comic-con on a budget, on a budget, on a budget, like taking the bus from Philadelphia to New York, (laughs) sending, sending my uh, books on a Greyhound bus in their freight, which is a super cheap way to get things from point A to point B, uh, sleeping on uh, Chris Russo's floor (laughs) because he was nice enough to put me up for the, uh, for the weekend. Uh, I've done it on a budget on a budget on a budget and and still had a hard time making a profit can i tell you that nothing sounds more rock bottom humanity than oh yeah i sent it freight on greyhound <laughs> like that just sounds like <laughs> well you know the story behind that mama says we're gonna get a trailer any day now to live in anyway we're sending this by freight on greyhound <laughs> I had run out of books. I think it was probably uh, the most recent Evil Ink book, and I hadn't brought enough at New York uh, one year, right in the beginning when it was just an amazing show. Remember those first couple of years? They had to bring the fire marshals in because it was so crowded. Right. Uh, They had such a success on their hands. And I hadn't brought enough books. And I was on the phone to my wife saying, oh, my God, it's only, you know, like Saturday. I didn't bring enough books. I sold out. And this place is crawling with people that want my stuff. You know, it's it's one of those magic situations. And Carolyn says, uh, I, this was before I had a studio. She says, see, that this is the one that's in the basement, right? And I go, yeah, it's sitting right there in the basement. She says, I can have it to you in a couple hours. And I go, listen, it's not worth it for you to drive all the way here. You got stuff to go on, blah, blah. She says, no, I, I, I know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to put it on Greyhound. She, and, and the Greyhound bus terminal is a few blocks away from the Javits Center. So she says, just, uh, I'll give you more information in a little bit. Let me get on top of this. She goes, puts these a couple boxes of more books uh, on a Greyhound bus for like pennies. I mean, it was like 20 bucks or 30 bucks. It, yeah. Cause it has to, it has to ride next to a goat and two chickens. That's like the, <laughs> that's the Greyhound promise. Yeah. But think of how expensive it would have been to, to put it like federal express overnight. No, no, I know. I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm taking the piss out of Greyhound so much. I just think <laughs> Greyhound as a concept is funny to me. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. But it literally in hours, uh, it was there I took a little break, walked from the Javits Center to the Port Authority. <laughs> then you've got to find your way through that old maze, and I'm not good at that. But uh, within a couple hours, I had more books. It was it was amazing. 
That actually is a, a, a smart way to do it. And, you know, what? since we're on the topic of freight, uh, I will pass along as a, a, a nice pro tip for everybody and for yourself, Brad, something that David Malky introduced me to, which is the FedEx Freight Box. Are you familiar with this? No. It, it's basically flat rate pallet shipping that FedEx offers. And because wow. we ship so many heavy items like books that are by volume very dense and very heavy, uh, boy, the flat rate of a FedEx a freight box. So I sent uh, 12 or 1,300 pounds of books to Topatico two weeks ago uh, from California to Massachusetts. It cost me 400 bucks to send 1,200 boxes, pounds of books. Holy cats! Yep. That, so I was like, I'm telling everybody I know about this FedEx freight box. Now, here's the caveat. Oh, boy, was it a pain in the ass to get it set up with FedEx. Oh, Nelly. Oh, they could bet. not have made that more consumer unfriendly. But the actual box <laughs> being brought to my uh, studio, us loading it up, them coming to pick it up, that could not have been easier. The price was great. So once you get past the setup process, which involves 7,000 administrative phone calls and emails, oh, boy, the FedEx freight box is cheap and useful. So uh, that's my pro tip yeah. for, uh, for everybody this week. Holy cats. That's a great pro tip. Yeah, so uh, anyway, getting back to the topic, though. So my takeaways for San Diego Comic-Con, uh, my as was in, its intended purpose, the Pug Book made its debut at Comic-Con, the new one. And mm -hmm. boy, did that thing sell like hotcakes. Uh, yeah. That book alone was made like 3500 bucks at San Diego Comic-Con, just that book. <laughs> and so, I don't doubt uh, it. Uh, I heard Spike Trotman say something interesting on a podcast the other day that it's worth repeating where she's like, I've seen artists that fight the success of certain titles of theirs. And she's like, don't do mm -hmm. that. Don't fight. And yeah. that's, that's what I've learned with that pug book is like, is that, uh, do I wish people were buying drive over the pug book? Maybe, but why fight it? If that's what they're going to buy at a comic con, let them buy it. You know? Uh, <laughs> You're, yeah. Yeah. Why would you sit there and question success? You got a success on your hands. Now go with it. Right. And I view it very much as my gateway drug. Like people that are like, Oh, Susan has a pug. I'll get her this pug book, you know? <laughs> and then either they or Susan eventually become a Sheldon reader. Like a high percentage yeah. of those book buyers become a Sheldon reader down the road. So even if it starts off with Susan has a pug, then then it eventually becomes like, I love Sheldon. I got this pug book right. last year. And now I'm getting all the books. No, you don't. That, that's just the thing is, is don't question success. You don't get to choose what you're good at. <laughs> you just be happy you're good at something. Yeah. So that's my that's my public <laughs> doff of the cap to Spike, because I think that point is really good is like when you have something that clicks, yeah. don't fight it. Like if it's if it's in your mind, you, the second best book you made, but everybody loves it, then let it ride. Let it go. Let people buy it. You know, don't don't push the yeah. other book. Um, anyway, so Emerald City Comic Con did not have the pug book last year. And so I'm a little bit oh. curious if there's a salvific property to that pug book at Emerald City Comic Con. But I want you to know that I, I'm ready to be taken to account if this show is not good this year. And you tell me with my, a hand on my shoulder, David, it's time to walk away. Yeah. Well, that was my next question on, on Emerald City. What do you think changed? Because that used to be such a solid show. Is there is there something that's that's different or do you think it was the uh, merchandise that you had on hand that weekend? Uh, I do think on some level it was the merchandise I had on hand that weekend, but uh, I may be alone in this and feel free to tell me that I'm dreaming. But it's slowly feeling like a different show to me the more Reed Exhibitions takes control of it from Jim Dimonakis, who ran the show and started the show and ran it for a decade. Um, yeah. It feels, 
everything has a little bit more of a fee tacked onto it as Reed takes mm-hmm. over more and more, you know, in terms of how they run the show. And it it's like, um, I don't know how to explain it. Um, it just has a different feel. It felt more family run and owned and operated, which is what it was uh, eight yeah. years ago than it does now. No, I, I, I was wondering about that. That was that was in the back of my mind when I asked the question is that are we, are we looking at kind of a long, steady decline for Emerald City? Uh, and, and, and if that's the case, it's kind of sad because that, that was a solid show for a long, long time. Well, like I said, I still even my worst year ever last year, I still made a profit. And the, the thing is, I meet and see readers and, and more fun for me, other cartoonists that I don't see anywhere else at Emerald City Comic Con. So yeah. there's definitely, and I'm admitting this out loud, there is an emotional component to that show that I get to see Canadian cartoonist friends that I don't see anywhere else, but I see them at Emerald City Comic Con. And there is Portland yeah. and Seattle cartoonists that I don't see anywhere else, but I see them at San Diego Comic Con. So it's kind of a big reunion for that weekend, and I make a profit on it. But if it's becoming less and less profitable, I, I need you to, to stage an intervention <laughs> and say, David, you got to know when to fold them and know when to walk away. And... Uh, <laughs> I need you to, is it Kenny Loggins? No, not Kenny Loggins. Kenny Rogers. Kenny, I need Kenny you to Kenny Rogers, Rogers me. <laughs> yeah, you got to know when to hold him and know when to fold him, man. Don't you remember when Kenny Rogers was on the Muppet Show and he sang that song in the stagecoach? Yep. You know what I thought? I just wish Kenny Rogers' plastic surgeon had told him that. <laughs> Kenny, I mean, Kenny, we can do this oh. nose job. Listen, we can do it, but you got to know when to hold him, when to hold him, know when to fold him, when to fold him, know when to walk away, know when to run. You got to stop this wow. facelift because you're, you're looking you, like a you're freak. You're fully invested in this joke, aren't you? <laughs> Cut to 10 minutes later, I'm still singing the verse. Um <laughs> Uh, I Kenny Loggins or Kenny Ooh. Rogers, what happened? You oh. keep doing that. <laughs> keep no, doing it's, that. it's uh, yeah, that that that's that's not a good that's not a good look. I, not- I, who'd have thought that uh, out of the two of them that did all those duets together that that Dolly Parton was going to age so wonderfully and Kenny Rogers was going to look like the the crypt keeper. <laughs> I, uh, Dolly Rogers, by the way, who probably, uh, Dolly Rogers, Dolly Parton, sorry. Beth and I were talking about Dolly Parton in the studio the other day. I'm not kidding when I say she might be one of my favorite Americans. I think she's an amazing uh, human being. There is nothing about Dolly Parton that I don't like. And when she passes, when she passes, I'm going to be legitimately sad. Uh, Dolly Parton is yeah. an amazing human being. Uh, all you need to do is is uh, next time Steel Magnolias is on uh, Netflix or Prime or whatever streaming service you have, pop in Steel Magnolias. That woman is a not only was she a, is she a fantastic singer, she could act her butt off. She was really good. Oh yeah, she's got amazing acting range. And the thing that didn't, uh, you know is always ninth on people's list of what props they give her, but really should be number one is she is savvy as f in business that woman is yes. an amazing entrepreneur <laughs> yeah she's smart i mean that that dolly land that she's got running and also she's uh dollywood but dollywood sorry she's uh she's also an incredible humanitarian her reading program for kids in the south of getting them books and stuff yep. she's great yep 
Anyway, I didn't mean no. to make this about Dolly. When, when really what I wanted to make fun of was Kenny Rogers' poor plastic surgery choices. That's what I <laughs> that's what I wanted to focus on. Really what we want to say is fuck Emmy Lou Harris. Let's <laughs> really get down to that. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> that was just the first country singer I could think of. I don't have anything against Emmy Lou Harris. I'm sure she's a nice lady. You know what's funny? It's like Emmy Lou Harris. I want I want to build the backstory for this. Emmy Lou Harris is at home. Uh, you know, the, the music career has died down and frankly, always wanted to be a cartoonist. And she hears about this podcast called Comic Lab. She listens to a few episodes. She's like, I'm really, you know what? I'm, I'm liking the energy of the show. I'm going to keep listening. All of a sudden, the fourth episode listening to... All, out of nowhere, almost just fuck Emmy Lou Harris and just instant tears. Just what? Ha- what did I do? I just wanted to be a cartoonist. Why are these people making fun of me? I didn't ask for this. <laughs> she puts down her number two sable and th- splashes the India ink across the room, and that's it. No well, more. Well, back to music for me. It just picks up the guitar again, <laughs> singing the blues. <laughs> Hey, if you're listening while you work, take a minute to stand and stretch. And while you're doing that, we're going to tell you why you should join us on Patreon. When you do, you're going to get hours and hours of podcasts that we've recorded just for backers. And exclusive Patreon posts that go even deeper on Comic Lab topics. And access to our exclusive Discord server, which is a thriving community of professional cartoonists. So you can support the show you love and get tons of actionable resources for your own cartooning. And listen, if you can't swing a pledge this month, we get it. No worries. Yeah, yeah, listen, you can still support the show by rating us wherever you get your podcasts. Just leave a five-star review and a few kind words. That, along with mentions on social media, is incredibly helpful. Now, everybody, let's talk comics. So, Dave, Dave, at some point we should probably... (laughs) We should probably start the show. (laughs) (laughs) That was a productive first half of the show, Brad. That was... (laughs) Yeah, we had a long lead in, although we did talk a lot about comics there, so I don't feel too bad about it. But but listen, we've got some excellent Patreon uh, $5 questions, and uh, I'd like to uh, bounce one off you right now. You ready? Uh, I would love it if you bounced off me. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one comes in from Jeremy, who says, in your experience, what percentage of your audience on website, webtoons, social media, translates to Patreon or Kickstarter. I have heard 1% Mm. and 10% of the audience will usually support Kickstarter, but I wasn't sure how accurate that is. Is that number different for Patreon? I I don't know. Do we want to? (laughs) Dave, come on. You want to talk about this topic, right? I no, I don't, I don't want. <laughs> you don't want to talk about uh, how you can uh, predict uh, uh, somebody backing something like a like a book or a Patreon based on your audience. <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to make you talk about it anyway. So picture it. Uh, it's 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 Dave Kellett, Brad Geiger, Scott Kurtz, and Chris Straub, and we're writing a book together called How to Make Web Comics. And we decide that along with everybody writing a chapter, each, uh, each of us is going to write little sidebars. Uh, and Dave, do you remember writing a sidebar saying how many sales? It went something like this. <sighs> Brad, oh, you have it ready? Oh, geez, Louise. <laughs> how many of your readers will actually buy a book, a T-shirt, or a bumper sticker? The answer is it varies. 
The audiences for some webcomics will devour books but never ever buy shirts, while for other audiences the reverse is true. Broadly speaking, over the entire life of your title, don't expect to sell more than 5 to 10% of your audience. 90 to 95% will never ever crack their wallets over the decades you cartoon. And for individual products, the number is even smaller. A new book or t-shirt might sell to a tiny sliver of audience, 0.5 to 5%. Keep that in mind as you begin exploring merchandise. Now, there's a lot of caveats there, a lot of a lot of over the life a lot of broad terminology, right? I so I have not heard that read in probably what was that eight years ago, uh, seven years ten ago, ten years ago. I, God, I, it was ten years ago. You keep oh. doing this. We've talked about oh 2018 was the ten year anniversary. That book came out in 2008. Oh my God, time comes for us all, Brad. Oh Lord, <laughs> ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, this is me looking back, going, my life. I know. <laughs> I think the title for this show is going to be Father Time Comes for Them All. My my point was I have not read that or thought about that in probably, okay, we wrote it 10 years ago. I have not thought about it in probably nine to eight years, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but there's a I, I can hear me couching that in a lot of caveats. But go ahead. What are you going to say? There's What's, a what lot it, of there's a lot of wiggle room in there. A lot of, you know, don't expect to sell more. Well, what happened was we had one reader. And I'm not going to name him because it's it's like one of those uh, uh, Candyman things. I'm or a Beetlejuice. If I say his name, I'm scared he's going to pop up. Yeah, you but never want to summon a troll. You never want to summon no, a troll. No, I'm not going to name him. Brad, I heard my name called on the podcast, <laughs> and I've come to troll you. <laughs> oh, God, I have nightmares about that guy. He was really out there, and oh, he yeah. was livid with us, and started a website. Uh, and one of the main purposes, it seemed, of this website was to criticize the How to Make Web Comics book. That was his, like his, that was his Niagara Falls. It was his go-to. And right. he was furious with you, Dave Kellett, because you told him that he could expect about 10% of his audience to buy T-shirts. He had been a cartoonist for nine months on the web. And that was the other thing. It was that we discovered uh, in doing the How to Make Web Comics book, the nine-month itch. We saw time and time again, nine months was the was the magic number. After nine months, everybody who started in webcomics expected to be famous. And we right. get all these emails at the nine-month mark saying, I've been doing this for nine months, and I'm not making any money, and you guys are all liars. And this one in particular was livid because he was counting his audience. He had a certain number of backers. He arranged, uh, he figured out what 10% of that was. And he expected that number of people to buy the piece of shit, crummy cafe press T-shirt that he put up. And that didn't happen. And he was furious with us. And specifically you. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> because you were the one that wrote that sidebar, man. Uh, man, I am once bitten, twice shy on this topic because I I hate having to think of that dude anytime I like talk about of the percentages you might sell to because I immediately yeah. get the the sense of like David, you once said that uh, you could sell between 0.5 and five percent of your audience, and I I have not sold any of these cafe press T shirts to my five readers, and uh, I'm very upset about this. And that's literally what it was. 
<laughs> he was expecting five sales, and those sales did not materialize, yeah. man. And it couldn't have been the fact that, that his comic wasn't uh, high quality. That was never a subject that came up. Uh, it couldn't have been the fact that he wasn't connecting with an audience. He was just, yeah, he, he was expecting uh, that that 10% to come through for him, and it never happened. So, Well, so let's, uh, let's dissect the numbers that 10 years ago I put out, because uh, there actually is some interesting talking points there and maybe some course corrections. But in general, yeah. here's what I thought I heard me saying 10 years ago in that passage you read, which is that over the course of the life of your title, don't expect to sell to more than 5 to 10% of the audience. And that's not on any individual book, I think, was what I was saying. That's correct. You were saying over the life of your career in comics. Yeah. And so I a little bit, that number is a little high probably, but... I would stick to the general thrust of that, which is that if you produce 10 books over 20 years, then only 5, 10% of your audience is going to buy one of those things over those 20 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but the, the number I think that's more helpful is let's say you put out a, a product, right? And uh, if I remember what you just read, I had said, don't expect to sell more than 0.5 to 5% at best. Uh, to that well, for that what, product, what, I, I don't want to correct you, but what you said was, "Don't expect to sell more than five to ten percent of your audience." Right, but wasn't there another number that was point five to five percent? And now that was for a specific shirt. You said That's like what I mean. for one piece of merchandise that might sell to a tiny sliver of your audience, 0.5 to 5%. So, okay, so that's the one I want to focus on because I think actually yeah. there's some truth to that. That a specific item. Uh, on average, not any individual thing, but like if you do 20 different SKUs, then on average, they will sell between 0.5 and 5%. I think that's probably, I think the 5% might be a little high, but the 0.5 to maybe 3% range is not unheard of for a single mm -hmm. uh, item to a readership. What do you think? Is that, was I shooting too high there? Here's what I think. Here's what I think. Uh, I think if you're spending a whole lot of time trying to figure out whether it's 1% or 2% or 3% or 4%, you're you've got your focus on exactly the wrong thing and this is dangerous because there are some things you should have your focus on that you're not paying attention to while you're trying to work out this magic number uh whether it's 5 or 3 or 2%. What you should be doing is keeping a close tab on what is connecting with your readers, yeah. what type of content is connecting, what type of merchandise, what type of Patreon tiers. This is a great course correction. Yeah, because yeah. what you're saying is that the, the overall thrust of this question is wrong because really it's not like, is it going to get 4.2% or 4.3%? The thrust should be like... Right. Uh, is it connecting? Why is it connecting? What can I do to make it more connecting? What product could I build off of this sentiment or book or T-shirt or, or mug that 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 captures that connection and uh, and will sell to, you know, 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000 people, that kind of thing. I get what you're yes. saying, that, that there's a yes. better way to approach this than trying to find the the, you know, the 400,000 digit of pie and, and therefore you've cracked the secret of the universe. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and not only that, but think about it. And we've talked about this for years. There are some people who have, uh, let's say, 100,000 readers, but those readers aren't necessarily very engaged. Well, they, they might have a small percentage of 100,000 readers is going to generate a pretty good uh, lifeblood for your business. Now, 
There's also some web cartoonists who have 10,000 readers, or let's make it even more than that. Let's say they only have 1,000 readers, but those readers are super engaged. They're really passionate about this thing that this uh, creator does. That's also going to generate a really good income for the webcomic business. Uh, it, it, so for one, the, per, the first person I mentioned, it might be 1%. For the other person I mentioned, it might be 10%. Uh, it, so the actual percentage doesn't matter other than like, like just to give you a sense of, uh, you know, fulfillment or something. Oh, gee, I'm getting 5% and, uh, most people only get three or whatever it takes to make you happy. Uh, but you should, the numbers that, that number, that percentage doesn't matter. What really matters is, are you able to connect with an audience at all? And if so, can you maximize on that? Are you smart enough to, uh, to, to turn some of that into exclusive content that is really going to generate Patreon backing, all of those things, that's really where you got to be paying attention. Trying to figure out whether it's 3 or 4%, it, 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 you've got your eye off the ball, and that's really dangerous. Right. Well, and, and here's a, a, a different way to address that same question. So I have done now, uh, I think it's 15, maybe 16 Sheldon books, and overall, yeah. I've done 19 books. Um, and so I want to tell you from my experience that if you try to apply some magical percentage to projects, things get really weird really quick. And, and, and they're illogical why some things click and some things don't. So of those 19 books, I've done like a Sheldon book six that sold like hotcakes. And then <laughs> I did a Sheldon book seven. And I've joked about this before because the title is still got it. And because based on the success of book six, I was like, I'm ordering a ton of this. Still got it. And guess what, Brad? I still got it because they're all sitting on my bookshelf. And yeah, yeah, you still got it. All right. I mean, the tone and the quality of book seven matches or exceeds the, the quality of book six. And yet it does not sell as well in any context online at Comic-Con. And so uh, if I was trying to assign some magical equation to like, it's going to sell 0.4% to my audience, it, uh, it sometimes there is no rhyme or reason to what connects. Yeah. Uh, and and so you just have to be prepared for that. I think the best way to say this, though, that's helpful to the to the broader audience of cartoonists out there is that it is a surprisingly small percentage of your audience that will buy anything. That's probably yes. the most helpful thing we can say. Yes. Although I do want to, I, I, and, I, and I think that's probably we're going to uh, leave that topic, but I do want to take a quick little tangent uh, because I think there's something about being a creator, uh, especially in this environment, that makes even the most logical person very superstitious. And what I want to know is, I remember the cover of that book seven. Did grandpa ever take a prime position in a cover after that book seven? Uh, <laughs> well, for those that want to take a moment down, uh, down googly lane and look for that book, here's what it features. It features the, the, the title is still got it. And it features Gramp in a towel at a sink, looking at himself in a mirror and he's flexing, but he's probably got an extra 60 pounds on him and he's got a hairy belly. And I think for a not small percentage of the population, they go, I don't, what the hell? I don't want that. <laughs> Like, I think I've seen specifically uh, ladies' reactions to that cover is like, Jesus, why would I want this? 
I want, give, give me the cute duck. What the hell is this with the fat guy with the no shirt? I don't want this. They're like, I got that at home. I don't want, I don't want, <laughs> I got that at home. I don't want another book about that. Give me, I want escapism from that. I'll take the cold-blooded lizard over that. Yeah. <laughs> give me the lizard and the pug, please. I don't want the fat guy. I got Greg at home looking like that. <laughs> I wondered about that because there are you you get superstitious as as logical and and maybe that was the case maybe it wasn't maybe it was just timing who knows but but it's funny how there's certain things that I that flopped big time and I I I've decided that it was because of whatever maybe it was the pants I was wearing that day or maybe it was the socks uh, uh, so I, I I won't do that again and you become very superstitious. You do. Well, especially because it's, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in repercussions when you make a mistake yeah. business-wise. And so my <laughs> my lesson learned there is no more fat naked guys on your cover. That was my big learning lesson. <laughs> Who'd have thought you'd have to be taught that lesson? <laughs> yeah. I should have taken a lesson from the Budweiser folks and not, not done that. That's what... Uh, uh, anyway, so that's uh, that. I think we we covered that yeah. one, yeah, my friend. Shall we turn on to the next question? Absolutely. All right. So I will read this one to you uh, because you very quite uh, kindly backed me into one of my more painful moments <laughs> in my career. So okay, here we go. All right. So Dave and Brad, uh, this comes from Post Apocalyptic Taco Truck Comic. Um, uh, all right. Here's the question: How many Kickstarter backer tier kick backers? Oh boy, David Kellett in English. <laughs> two friends that go well together. Here we go. Let's try this again. Brad, how many Kickstarter backer tiers would you recommend having for first-time Kickstarters? And are there any stretch goals or add-ons you would recommend that are easy to produce and won't be too hard to ship? Your expert sage advice would be greatly appreciated. All right, so that's the question to you, Brad. Let's tackle those individually. How many Kickstarter tiers, broadly speaking, would you recommend that a first-time Kickstarter offer to backers? Oh, that, this is great because I've given this a lot of thought. Uh, the number is three. Uh, if you're if you're a first time Kickstarter backer, uh, you're going to want to have three tiers. Uh, if you have four or more, you're going to fail. And if you only have one or two, you're going to fail. But uh, you, if you have three, you are guaranteed a success. I love it when I can spot your sarcasm before you even get halfway through the sentence. This is another one of those goddamn magic number questions. How many Kickstarter tiers should you have? That There are so many variables involved in your Kickstarter. How could we ever answer that well, question? I, you know what? So uh, unlike you, I have not done anything about this. But when you started to say three tiers, I'm going to be honest with you. A big part of me was like, actually, three tiers make sense. You have... <laughs> You have a standard uh, tier that's like a standard price, a light version, uh -huh. and then a premium version. And that's not a bad way to do it in general, I'm saying, in terms of pricing. No, but listen, there's there's so many there's so many variables. If you if you actually took that advice, you might be limiting yourself uh, to a great degree because there, depending on what you're able to produce and what you're willing to produce and what your audience has responded to, in other words, okay, let's say you took that three-tier advice. Uh, does that include artist editions? Uh, well, so, like, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is mentally consumers have been primed for the small, medium, large price points. Yeah. Uh, and having worked at Mattel, we used to have the what would be called impulse purchase price points, the standard price points, and the aspirational price points, which was like, it's a kid's birthday. It's Christmas. It's something special happened in that kid's life. And so Mattel used to price for that kind of thinking. And so 
I know you were being a jerk about it, but three price points is actually not the worst way to start for a new Kickstarter backer. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna and, try to dissuade you of that. Uh, because what Mattel right. was doing, they had a, they had a limit of the type of merchandise they could create. In other words, they didn't right. and have more importantly, an they infinite... had a limit on the shelf space that Target or Toys R Us exactly. Would so yeah. comparing the two might not be the best uh, way. I'm going to give you another way of looking at that and see if you don't like this a little bit better. Instead of trying to find a magic number of tiers, think of your Kickstarter as a ladder. And what you're going to do is you're going to continually add things onto that ladder and add based on price jumps that are commensurate with what you're adding. In other words, you can't add uh, uh, original art and only go up $5. You, you've got to have that jump be commensurate. But think of your Kickstarter tiers as a ladder. And you're going to start them at the bottom of the ladder, and they're going to go up that ladder. And every time that price jump's going to go, what y- your intended response is, oh, that's even better, and it's not that much more. Or, oh, that's right, even better. Right, okay. I wouldn't mind spending a little extra to get that. And your whole goal is to get them as far up the ladder as you can. And at some point, it's going to top out. They're going to say, oh, another $100 for original art, I'm out. And I'll stay at the eighty right, level, eighty dollar level, or whatever that is. I I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there because I want to co-sign that strongly. I think yeah. that's that's a great way to look at it, where it's a consistent. And I want to add to that. That's why I'm stopping you here, okay? Uh, because I've seen people make this mistake. Let's use letters as the comparative here. Let's say each product that you're offering is a letter. So uh, tier number one is A, and it's $5. Yeah. Tier two is A and B, and it's $10. Tier three is A, B, C, and it's $15. You get where I'm going right. with this. So building off Brad's idea, the one thing that I would strongly recommend that you do not do is you don't want to step away from consistency because you want it to be apples to apples as people are working up that yes. price chain. So you don't want it to be A, B, C, D, but then when you get to the next tier, it's A, C, D, E, but you don't get B, but just on this one tier. Right. And then the next tier is A, B, C, D, E, F, but not G, but you do get H, because ah, then you ah, just end up confusing ah, people. So you what need I'm a getting CPA at is, to help you figure out what you want to be on that Kickstarter. Yeah, just I, what I'm saying is just uh, keep it consistent where everything is additional, but it's like everything that you saw on the previous tier plus. Yeah. That's the, that's the mindset you want to get into, because otherwise you're going to confuse people. Uh, I've seen people make that mistake. Not only that, but let's face it. Now with stuff like Backer Kit, which both of us have used and liked at this point, there's no reason to do that A, B, D, and not C, and sometimes H. Uh, you can do a nice, consistent Kickstarter ladder and then have all that other stuff available in Backer Kit to be add-ons later. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as someone who's done seven or eight Kickstarters now, uh, make future you happy and make it, easy to fulfill these yeah and yeah what that what that means is like don't don't make a lot of weird hoops that you got to jump through like if you back at this level i will draw you as a character but <laughs> but as a vulcan <laughs> but in the original <laughs> series and you're going to be riding a dragon and like you want it to be easily reproducible cheap to produce yeah. easy to ship and not hard not mentally uh, taking up a lot of your mental space you want it to be uh, uh, something that we can rapidly cranked out. So things that could be included be at uh, the lowest tier, you want to do an ebook. You want to do something digital um, that just uh, basically a digital thank you for a 5 to $10 pledge. Wouldn't you say that's a good starting yes, point, Brad? I, I, I am wholesale with and you. And then whether you're doing a mug or a t-shirt or a book or whatever the physical product is, the lowest tier is just that physical product. That's a standard one. Yep. 
And then uh, some some low cost but high perceived value items that I would recommend are very well printed uh, poster and uh, a postcard prints. These are like little four by six or five by seven postcards mm-hmm. that have all the qualities and hallmark of a very nice print. Um, those flat pack, which is key, um, they have a lot of perceived value because they are literally as we used to do with shelving retail for Mattel toys, it has a nice perceived value because it's a wide and tall item, even though it literally is micromillimeters thick, right. you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, prints in general, uh, whether they're eight by 10, you always want it to be something that can be inserted easily and without a lot of destruction into a package. Uh, pins are great. Uh, bumper stickers are great. Um, what else? Can, what else am I missing, Brad? That's easily added on for low cost, easy to ship, and that adds value. Well, uh, both of those things are good, but what I'm I'm going to also take a little side trot over here and say, don't neglect digital uh, stuff as you're going up because again, those aren't going to cost you anything to ship. And I've seen yep. a really big response, like way bigger than I thought. I had some Kickstarter tiers that was basically everything from the previous tier and then a whole bunch of digital stuff. And those got a really big response. So don't don't yeah. discount ebooks and, and e-comics. People enjoy those a lot more than you think they do, and they don't cost anything to ship. Yeah. Can I take a side trot from your side trot? Take a side side trot. By the way, I love the I love the phrase side trot because it sounds a little bit like your the the burrito you ordered went bad and you're not. Uh, um, <laughs> oh <right>. boy, <laughs> that, that that lasagna just hit me. I'm gonna have to take a side trot. Oh boy, I should not have had that couscous. Boy, do I I've got a side trot action thing going on here. Um, all right, so uh, anyway, what I want to say is, um, you know what would have been funnier than couscous? Goulash. Goulash is always funnier as a phrase. Goulash is a funny word. Funnier than lasagna. That's a funny word. Yeah. Yes. Why did I do couscous? Couscous is a weird one to, to try it because it's got that repeated vowel. Couscous is only funny when you say an amuse-bouche of couscous. <laughs> That's the only way to say that funny. Um, anyway, wh- God, now I lost my train of thought. What, uh, oh, digital offerings. So I, I 100% co-sign what Brad said, that digital offerings add a lot of perceived value and people jump on it. But unlike what Brad just said, that people really love that, here's what I will add to that. People think they love it. But then when it comes time to claim them, because I've watched the downloads, not everybody claims their digital goods. Who cares? And it's weird. It's like, you've paid for it. Why aren't you downloading this? Uh, uh, Today, Dave, I, I think it's, Dave, it's a, who cares? What? Who cares? They paid, they paid you money. <laughs> they, I mean, they've, no, already given not, you, they've already given you their money. If they don't download it, that's Brad, fine. They, as long as they give you their money. You're missing the point. I am not, I am not looking a gift horse in the mouth. I'm just saying like, it's fascinating to me that oh, people are like, okay. yeah, I'd happily pay 20 extra dollars for a PDFs of every Sheldon book. And they're like, okay, great. Here's the links. And I don't know, 30 to 60% download it. And the other 70 to 40 don't. And you're like, why, why did you back this? No, oh, I, I co-sign that strongly. And I've seen, and by the way, Dave, I've seen the same thing where they, they, they love getting it. And then, and you know what I think it is? I think they like knowing that they've got it and that they can download it anytime they want. They just don't want to do that right now. But they like knowing that they could. Right. But in the meantime, what a tremendous upsell it's been to add those digital goods to their uh, bottom line, which is great. Now, Dave... This was a two-part question, and it, and, and the first one, uh, I, I don't, I, I wanted to uh, give you a different way to look at that. But the second one, uh, the second part of that is meaty. So let's take a little time to to delve into this. Stretch goals 
and or add-ons. What do you recommend when it comes to doing stretch goals and add-ons? Oh, okay. Well, I see what they're saying. So they're not saying uh, physical items that are easy to ship. I read that wrong. You're they're they're wanting to know add-ons and stretch goals for the product, yeah, right? Yeah. So um, uh, I'm going to focus on books for a second, just because that's what a lot of us produce on Kickstarter. Not a lot of us use T-shirts or mugs or smaller products. We just mm-hmm. make the product. We don't kickstart it. So let's talk about books. Things that I have found that do not add a lot to the bottom line, uh, more than a few hundred bucks to the to the to the cost of goods sold, um, but add a lot of perceived value include uh, UV spot printing, which is a type of uh, clear liquid plastic that is printed onto the book uh, that gives it kind of a sheen in certain spots. So UV spot printing is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, Foil printing, which is a little more expensive, which adds a metallic spot hit um, onto a book. Uh, that has a lot of perceived value on a shelf or on a Comic-Con or even on a website if photographed well. Um, and that one costs a little bit more, but it's also worth it. Um, shrink wrapping a book is great. That literally adds pennies onto the book, but not only does it protect the books in shipping, uh, customers love it when they can crack open a book and it feels perfectly fresh from the factory clean. Yeah. Um, and so that one I would recommend, uh, a, a bookmark, a built-in ribbon bookmark yes. adds, I think, uh, 0.2%, two cents or two, six cents, something ridiculously small to a book, uh, but has an incredible quality feel to it. Um, slip covers in general, uh, French flaps, if it's a soft cover, um, uh, Jumping from black and white book to color is a big jump, but if you can make it, boy, people love a color book. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else am I missing, Brad? What, what did I forget? Oh, those are all those are all ones that I a bunch of those are ones that I'm always jealous of you because you do them, and I'm like, oh, one of these days I'm gonna experiment with that. Each and every one of those are are good. Uh, what I would suggest in terms of talking about stretch goals, though are uh, what you see sometimes people are like, oh, if you do this, I'll print a second book and everybody, and, and I've actually kind of experimented with this and, and came out okay, but it's it's dangerous. Oh boy, we, I feel like that's a mistake though. Yeah, yeah, where you say, oh, I'm going to do a second book and, and you're, I'm going to throw that in and blah, blah, blah. Be very careful with your stretch goals that in an effort to make that number go higher and higher and higher, that you don't end up making your costs go higher and higher and higher, and you end up right, eating right. some of your profits. So be very careful. You know what? There's there's a lot to be said for a well-managed Kickstarter, even if the number doesn't go into six digits. A well-managed Kickstarter that covers all your costs, uh, gives you a little extra uh, merchandise to sell at the end, gives you maybe a little extra uh, profit that you can use to, to cover any incidentals that come up. Uh, there's a lot to be said for that. And and that can happen uh, without making that number go sky high. What I see it time and time again is people that get Kickstarter fever and they're like, uh, and I'll give you this and I'll give you that. And I'll get, cause they like seeing that yeah. number go oh, higher God. and higher and higher. And it's like, you're going to have to come through with all this stuff at some time, buddy. Oh boy. Do I agree with that? But I, I want to say though, that if you do get Kickstarter fever and we all kind of do at the last week or yeah. 10 day point, uh, if you do do it with work, that's already done. Yes. Don't promise new stuff. Yes. 
So what I mean by that is if we can break the $40,000 point, then everyone will get the second Evil Link PDF ebook for free. Right. Everybody. doesn't matter what tier you're at. So tell a friend and get them on the, the Kickstarter, right? Yeah. Or uh, everybody that if, if we can break $50,000 and everyone's going to get the Evil Link screensaver set featuring 20 different screensavers that I produced four years ago and haven't opened up that zip file <laughs> since, but you're all going to get it, you know? Yeah. Something like that. Uh, don't don't say like I'm gonna hand draw everybody their own mural in their bedroom. If we can get to fifty thousand dollars, here's a bunch of more work that I'm giving myself. Oh boy, am I gonna regret this three weeks from now? <laughs> don't do that. You know. Yeah, because Kickstarter fever is always followed by Kickstarter hangover, where you wake up the next morning and you go, Oh my god, did I promise all of that? I want you to approach your Kickstarter planning like the plastic surgeon should have done with Kenny Rogers. <laughs> I want you to say, like, look, the nose job is okay, but let's not do the eyelid lift. It's going to make everybody freak out, and you're going to look like an alien. Don't. Let's not do that. Let's not do the cheek implants. That's weird. That's adding a lot of stuff that nobody needs. Don't do that. I remember I, I shared a uh, I shared a, an elevator with Kenny Rogers once, and I told him, I said, uh, you know what? I, I think you went way too high with the eyebrows, and I, I got to tell you, he looks surprised. Sometimes I don't know how to react to your jokes. I don't know whether to be mad or just to ride the enjoyment. I don't know how to react. I don't know whether I'm angry with you or want to hug you for that joke. Brad, your jokes confuse me. And not... Not in a misunderstanding way. I don't know how I should feel. That was both great and terrible. All right. Anyway, um, I'm going to be honest. He looks surprised. That was a great delivery, though. You, you, you're very good about the. Uh, anyway, all right. Um, so now that we've. Well, listen, I, I I don't think we could find a better place to bring this podcast to a crashing halt. So I'll tell you that you've been listening to Comic Lab, the show about making comics and making a living from comics. Well, your hosts have been Brad Geiger, the editor of webcomics.com and the cartoonist of Evil Inc. at evil-comic.com. And Dave Kellett, my friend, co-director of Stripped and cartoonist of Sheldon at sheldoncomics.com and Drive at DriveComics.com. And a special thank you this week to Kenny Rogers' lawyers for not suing us for defamation. All right. And the Comic Lab theme song is used with permission from Andy Creighton at theworldrecord.net. And this episode, as all episodes, was edited by Matt Woodard of Woodsong Productions over at www.woodsong.media. Comic Lab is made possible by your support on patreon.com slash comic lab. So we'll go ahead and say that twice. Patreon.com slash Comic Lab. You got to know when to walk out of the doctor's office. Know when to walk out of the doctor's office. Just walk out of the doctor's office. Just go back home. You don't want that ear lift. It's going to make you look like a freaky dog. You don't want... I don't know. <laughs> that broke apart. Boy, I lost the meter. I lost the tone. I'm not good at singing, Brad. I'm not a good singer. Nah, I know you're not. I know you're not. I've... <laughs>